Tonight what I want to do, in kind of a part two, is to talk about how Paul talks about the culture on the one hand and how he talks to the culture on the other. And the reason I want to do this is because um, I am pretty convinced that the church as a whole, particularly in question, countries where Western influence exists, um, have wrestled with the change that has gone on probably in the last century. And that change is that where the bulk of Western culture and the character of Western culture was substantially Christian and was surrounded by a Judeo-Christian net that caught people, whether they actually were in church or not, today that net in some countries is almost completely gone. And in countries where it exists and has existed, uh, it's going away. It, the situation here is different than the situation in my own country. In the United States, in Dallas, on any given Sunday, half the population is in church. Just think about that for a second. And I'm well aware that in many countries in Western Europe and in many uh, cities here, uh, that's not near the number of people who are in church. That's saying it nicely. The it, it's, it's single digits. It's even, huh? 9%. 9%. Okay. Very good. See? I, I'm so glad you're here with us. So, um, so 9%. That's, that's, that's nice. That fills in a detail. Uh, that ha- have people in houses of worship on a given Sunday. And, and so you all are wrestling with, have wrestled with not only the shredding of the net, but the fact that there's very little social or political power that still exists coming from the church, even though the church in some parts of the West still has a kind of shadow that they cast on some of the discussion. And the change that's happened in my own lifetime very, very clearly is, is that even where the net existed and or the net was shredding, there was a time in which Christianity was at least regarded in a respectable kind of way. Well, this is a wise way to live, or, or it can't hurt to be a worshiper of God, that kind of thing. And in my own recent lifetime, I'm watching that attitude change to a hostility against the faith, which puts us in a very odd position, because we've gone from, and, and in some, some cases, some of us have grown up as privileged people whose faith was privileged in one sense or another, and now we're no longer, uh, uh, Dwayne Lipman, former president of Wheaton College, put it this way, we're no longer the home team. Uh, and, and so we've shifted. Well, the interesting and fascinating thing is, is that in the New Testament, in the first century, the church was extremely effective, even though it had no political power and no social power to speak of. So this message is entitled Back to the Future because I want to go back to the first century and I want to think about what it means for the church to have no social power and no political power and yet still do well and thrive. What allowed that to happen and how does that work? And I think those lessons are important for us because I think that's either where we are or where we're headed. You can think about it either way. 
And, and so looking at that is important. And one of the ways in which the church can make a mistake in this regard is to confuse what the church says about the world. I talked a little bit about this this morning when I talked about Jimmy Cagney theology, you know, that Black and Decker voice. Ah, nah, nah, you dirty rat, you shouldn't be doing that. You know, and I asked where the gospel was in that message. Um, and, and so you can, you can think about it that way and think about it in terms of this, this challenge. And what we tend to do is we tend to communicate what we think about the world to the world that we're interacting with. And Paul's going to do that in Acts, but he's not going to do it in the way that he talks about the culture when he talks about it in Romans 1. And there's a lesson in that. In fact, the lesson is so profound that liberal scholars will say that the person who writes in Romans, who we're confident is Paul, cannot be the same person that we have portrayed in Acts 17. That's Luke's construction of Paul. That's not the real Paul. And the difference that we see is not a difference to learn from, really. I'm suggesting that if this is the same person, the person who wrote Romans 1 is also the person who speaks in Acts 17, then there's much to learn from what's going on. And to disconnect that is actually to rob the church of a very important lesson that it can, it can have about engagement. So that's, that's, that's my offer to you tonight. And so I want to start off in Romans chapter 1. This is a very famous passage. I think it would be fair to say that this text is probably in modern eyes, in modern secular eyes, the most politically incorrect text, if not, if not one of, the most politically incorrect text in the New Testament. When I read it, I think about our evening news. I read it and I go, Paul may be a first century person, but he lives in a 21st century world. And so let me read this. I'm not going to say too much about this text. I'm just going to let it speak for itself. And uh, although, because I'm a preacher, I can't keep that promise. So, um, so here we go. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all godlessness and the wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. And I said I wouldn't comment on it, and as I told you, I was going to lie. And here's the beginning of the lie. When I'm flying on a plane, which um, takes a while when you come from the United States to Australia or go the other direction. I mean, no one should be trapped in a tube for 16 hours without a break, okay? It's not humane. And so, so there's time to think. The reason there's time to think is there are not enough good movies. And so you're trapped on the plane as you're moving back to forth. And, and, and sometimes I think about... When I, when I approach the airport to get ready on a plane, a, particularly a transatlantic plane or a trans-Pacific plane, international flight, and you look at how large the plane is, how massive, 
and the amazing design and technology it takes to get us from one place to another, and the ingenuity that it took to fly, etc., and the massiveness of the plane. I mean, you know, if you put that plane on a, on a weight scale, you know, there'd be a lot of numbers. It's just a, just a massive thing. And then, as you're in the air, you hit turbulence. And this isn't going where you think it is. I'm not thinking about the future of my life and whether I'm getting ready for heaven or anything like that. Okay? But I'm thinking about the amount of power that's in the air that is able to disturb this massive tube that I'm in. And that's just an infinitesimal piece of what goes on in the creation. The amount of power or the amount of electricity that is generated by a bolt of lightning is massive. The amount of precision of what it takes for our atmosphere to function so that we can live requires a whole variety of things going right in order for that to happen. In fact, some of our concern about global warming in our environment is that we may upset the balance in such a way that it could become destructive, that kind of thing. And I think about all those things and I think that is a designed feature that points to the existence of God. These are not inanimate realities that we're dealing with. This reality that we live in is animated. And it is animated with the presence of a design that is far greater than the plane that I'm flying in. And so when the text says that God has made it plain to them, because, and, and uh, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood by what has been made, so that people are without excuse, I go, yes, I think that makes sense. And it goes on to say, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but by their thinking became futile in their, in their foolish hearts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being, birds, animals, and reptiles. He's thinking about the idols that exist all around him in the world that he lives in, in the way in which our tendency is to reverse the order of creation, in which the creator has been shunted to the side and the creature has become like the creator. And he's going, there's something wrong with that. There's something off. But he's saying it very directly and very, very strongly. And he goes on to say that their foolish hearts were dark, and although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, birds, and animals, and reptiles. And then it says, therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever to be praised. Amen. His fundamental charge of the culture is in verse 25. The reversal that happens in our creation is a reversal in which the creator, Creator is shunted to the side, and creatures become the creators. Only the problem is, when you've got seven billion gods operating in the world, you have chaos. And so, 
He sets the table this way. Now, what has happened with our reading of this text is that we then come to the next section, which is the most politically incorrect part of it for our modern culture. And we read it in such a way that we make a point out of the particular illustration Paul is making about where our culture is off target. And I want to play with this idea a little bit because I think in doing that, we actually misuse the text. So here we go. It says, um, because of this, verse 26, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty of their error. And that's the example that he points out and what we do with that example is we take it and we say look at how bad things are and this is the worst possible example that's what we do but look what happens to the rest of the section he's still talking about the culture he's being very honest he's being very direct he's not pulling any punches he's saying our chaos our world is a mess it is off Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind, so they ought to do what ought not to be done. And then what we get is a vice list. If you study ancient texts, this is common. You get vice lists and you get virtue lists, and this is a vice list. It says, they become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, depravity, They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Boy, is that a great resume. Imagine putting that on your CV. This is who I am. This is what I do. Um... And it's a mess. I often joke with our people at Dallas that we need a class in messology. The study of the mess. Be the study of what's going on around us. We don't pay enough attention to it sometimes. Or if we do, all we do is talk about certain messes. And then there comes this part of the text. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do, and now I'm going to put some grammar on you. Such things, okay? Now, I know when I say the word English grammar, some of you could get nervous because you remember your school days and English grammar was a very disturbing topic to study. But this is a really simple concept. At this point of the text, we are with a plural, not a singular. Those who do such things, he's referring back to his entire vice list. He is not referring just to one sin, even the sin that he has highlighted in the illustration. He's referring to the whole thing. Those who do such things deserve death. They not only continue to do these things, still plural, but also approve of those who practice them, still plural. Here's the point that Paul is making as he talks very directly about our culture, how how it has exchanged God and the creator God for the creature, how it has reversed the design, how it is off. 
What Paul is doing here is he is saying we all have need for God, without exception. In fact, when I was sharing this passage one time, a youth worker in one of the churches came up to me afterwards and he says, you know, when I talk to our high school kids about this text, I tell them, put your initials by the thing, one thing in the list that gets you. I thought, ooh, that's pretty cool. You know, what catches me out when God talks about where our culture is and where we are without him? Something in this list will get you. And something in this list will communicate that you're guilty. And if you don't think that, you read on to chapter 2 with the people who have the law who are Jewish people, and the opening lines are about you pass judgment on someone else, but you do the same thing yourself. He's thinking about the list and everything that's in it. And so Paul challenges culture and says, in effect, we're all in the same boat without God. That's important. In fact, in chapter 3, he's going to make the point, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, to make the point about why we need the gospel. But my major point in looking at this is to say, Paul's very direct about the culture. He's very harsh. He's very challenging. There is Nothing in this that is soft, comforting words. He's hard on the culture. So how do you speak to a culture that's what you think of? Because your tendency might be to come out swinging. So what does Paul do? And for that, I want you to flip to Acts chapter 17. This was the text that was read. And I'm just going to go through and point out a few things about the text. In verse 16, it's a very, very important verse. You don't just dive into the speech. Because if you dive into the speech, you will miss the framing of the speech. And the framing of the speech here is very, very important. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. That's actually a pretty soft translation. He was provoked by those idols. That's the actual force of the Greek word. He was, to use a German phrase, nicht froh, which means not happy. He looked at those idols, and the reason this introduction is important is we know that mentally he is in the same place as he walks through Athens and see those idols as he was when he wrote those words that I just read to you from Romans 1. Nothing has changed about the way he sees the world around him. So it says he was greatly provoked to see the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some asked, what does this babbler, what is this babbler trying to say? Now this babbler comes from a Greek word that literally means seed picker. It's a, it's a bird. You know, if you go to the park here in Sydney, I've done, I've done this here. You go to the park and you see these birds and they just flit from one thing to another. They don't stay very long in one place. They just pick up that crumb and then this crumb and then that crumb and this crumb. Okay? And that's how Paul's described, which is important to understand before we listen to this speech because he's not being introduced the way, for example, I might get in- introduced when I'm not being called a super nerd. Um, uh, I might be introduced when I'm speaking, you know, we have, in fact, this is not what happened in the first century. It is our pleasure to welcome 
Paul, a bringer of a new and wonderful and stimulating religion. And we have invited him to come speak to us here at at Areopagus and Mars Hill because he's bringing us new and challenging things that we actually ought to think about. And he has such depth of learning. None of that's going on. No, he is a sideshow for them. And Paul knows this. And he still says what he's going to say to them. I think that's important to realize. He knows he's speaking to an audience that is pushing back and does not believe what he is about to tell them. What is this babbler trying to say? Others remark, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and they brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, Well, we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting. You're bringing strange ideas to your to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And then there's this little aside in the text, okay? And I, I don't know if Australia is like the United States here. I, I think I've heard that it is. But when we do our evening news, okay, we do it in, in the early evening, we have the early evening segment, and usually it's a local news and then a national news, and then we go back to local news, and then there's another 30 minutes. And that 30 minutes is what I would call public irrelevant news okay we you know we have a show that that tmz sponsors for example you know and inquiring minds want to know what the latest gossip is and you know what's going on here and there and this verse this is one of my favorite verses in the new testament verse 21 tells me that that world is like our, our world all the athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas this is the what for us would be the 6.30 to 7 o'clock part of the TV schedule. And um, all the news that people are curious about and that has absolutely no social redeeming value whatsoever. Do you get the context? Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Okay, he's, he's provoked by the idols. He's being pushed back against. He's viewed as someone who's a seed picker who's, who doesn't have any depth. He's basically entertainment. And this is how he starts. People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, I'm a child of the 60s. And when I read that verse and think about everything that I've just described, my initial reaction is, Paul, what have you been smoking? That's the last thing you'd expect Paul to say. To open up a speech to the culture that he has reacted against, as we've seen in Romans 1, and the idols that have provoked him, and he says, you're very religious people. That's not the opening I would think we would get. Now, it is interesting that the word that he uses here kind of has a double edge to it. It means religious. It can also suggest superstitious. But he's using it more positively than negatively here because of what follows in the speech. That we know. And here's what he's doing. And this is my point. This is the only point I want you to get tonight. Paul is working to build a bridge to the people that he is addressing, starting with where they are coming from while at the same time he's going to gently but clearly challenge them. 
Both elements are important. The effort to build the bridge and to understand the space that his audience is occupying while at the same time challenging them. I said this morning, and this is always true, the gospel has a tension built into it. The tension that the gospel has built into it is on the one hand, you're going to challenge people in the way they live. You're going to call people to repent, to change their minds about the way they see themselves in the world. That's a challenge on the one hand. But you're also issuing simultaneously an invitation. And the invitation is to get spiritually connected. In fact, the invitation is in some ways even more profound than that. It's to actually rediscover why you are here. Why did God make you? And what are you supposed to be about in this life? And those two things rub against each other and have to be balanced in how we engage. And so Paul starts off by saying, I see you are very religious. Verse, I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of your worship. And he's thinking, and there were lots of them. In fact, it's very, very interesting. The ancient world was actually a very religious and spiritual world. They had a deep belief that there were all kinds of of realities and forces that they could not see that were around them. The calendar had 150 different religious holidays every year. That's a holiday every three days. We ought to adopt that calendar. (laughs) And in the midst of that calendar, they had many, many gods. They had gods for anything and everything you could think of. If you walk around Pompeii, You will run into this temple to this God and another temple to that God and a third temple to a third God. In fact, Christians in the early period, now this will blow your mind, were called atheists. What? Well, the reason they were called atheists is because they only believed in one God and all those other gods that we believe in, you don't believe in. So you're an atheist. And so he he walks in and he says, as I was observing your objects of worship. I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Fill in the blank. So you, what you are ignorant, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And here's what Paul does. Paul is going to start with where they are coming from, and then he's going to engage them in a way that is designed to give them pause about where they are coming from. He just wants to get them to stop and think about the kind of spirituality they're engaged in. He doesn't walk in and say, you know what, you're not spiritual. That's not what he says. He says, you are spiritual, but let's talk about that spirituality, and let's talk about what spirituality is. And then he deals with this question, which is an interesting question. How in the world do you speak to an audience about the Christian message when they don't know schmatz about the Bible? Now, schmatz is a technical term, okay? They don't know anything about the Bible. They don't know Genesis from Malachi, from Matthew to Revelation. They don't know. They don't know it. Where is, what's ground zero? Where do you start when you start from scratch? And we have more people who are like that in our world. So where do you start? And what we're going to see, what we see in this speech If you compare this speech to the other speeches in Acts, where Peter is speaking to an audience that knows a little bit about the Hebrew Scriptures, about the Old Testament, you will see him quote Scripture and allude to it, and cite it. And here, 
he's just getting people to stop and think. So he sits down and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he started his challenge. He started his challenge in the starting place. There is a creator God, and we are the creatures. And he's working to the idea, if there is a creator God and we are the creatures, we are accountable to that creator God. That's where he's going. That's his starting point. You don't need to know Genesis through Revelation to start there. Now, this is where the difference between our modern world and the world into which Paul's preaching is important. Because in the ancient world, they believed in these spiritual forces and thought that they were surrounded by them. They did not struggle with the idea that there's something out there that is spiritual and deity or deities. In our world, we've got that problem. But the starting point is here. If you can't get people to think about the fact that there is a personal God, then you have no basis to talk about an accountability. And if you can't talk about an accountability, you can't talk about things like sin. And if you can't talk about things like sin, you can't talk about things like the cross. And the resurrection becomes a very empty event to proclaim because it has no context. So this is a very, very important starting point that he's dealing with. And what he's going to say, but he doesn't attack it from the standpoint that a Christian would come at it from. He, he, isn't, he isn't going to the cross yet. Instead, what he does is he goes at the character and issue of God by starting where they are coming from. Look at what he does. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This is this pause that I'm talking about. For one man he made all the nations that they should have the whole earth, and he marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he's not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. And some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. So... Since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and human skill. In the past, God overlooked some things. And here's the point that he's saying is, if God is the creator, if he is the creator of heaven and earth, if he occupies all of that space, no building that you build or no representation that you make can contain him. Hit the pause button. He's getting them to pause. He's getting them to pause in the space where they are coming from. Aside, quick application. I host a podcast at Dallas Seminary called The Table, and we've done a series on world religions, and we've spent a lot of time talking about world religions, how Christians should think about engaging with people whose religious background is different. This is what we did not do. We did not take that religion and lay it up against the theology and doctrine of the Bible and say, here's what the theology of the Bible teaches, and here's what this religion teaches, and here's why it's wrong. We didn't do that. Not that it's wrong to do that. That's one way to do it. But here's what we did. We asked three questions of any religion that we looked at in the podcast. We take 46 minutes to do what we do. The first question is, what does this faith believe? And is it even a religion? because some of them were Eastern religions that would better be classified as philosophies or ways of life than religions. The second question is perhaps the most important in some ways, 
And that is, what is the Velcro factor in this faith? What causes someone to stick with allegiance to this particular religion? What's its attraction? How does it hold people? What's it about? How does it capture them? And then the third question is, how does the gospel speak to that Velcro factor? Now, you see what we're doing? We're, we're thinking about the space that someone else is coming from and working from there. That's exactly what Paul's doing here. He's thinking about these people live in these temples, interact with them on a regular basis. And I'm getting them to think about if God really exists and if God is singular, which is going to be a challenge. You can't contain him. If he's really the God of heaven and earth, you can't contain him. And he starts from there. And, we're, and his design is to give pause from where they are coming from and then use the gospel to step in to that pause button and begin reflection. There's also something else that's been going on all the way through the book of Acts. I can't tell you how important this is. The actual apologetic for the church is ultimately not ideas. It's relationships. They have served and ministered to the very people pushing back to them. There's a wonderful text in Acts 4 in which the church is being persecuted for the first time. And Peter comes back to the church and they pray. And when they pray, there are two things they do not pray for that we might pray for if we were in the same situation. It would be they don't pray to nuke the enemy. God, judge them. Judge them. Purge the earth. And they don't pray that the persecution be taken away. They pray for two things. Make us bold in our message and give us the ability to serve the people around us who are pushing against us. That is an amazing prayer. And actually, if you read Acts, in several places the point is made, in fact, this is what's happening here is, the point is made, the church was bold in its witness and faithful. And they continued to minister to the people pushing against them. All the violence in Acts is never done by someone who believes in Jesus. All the violence is coming from the other side against them. And so Paul is reaching out and he is coming at them from the place where they are starting and he's trying to give them pause. It says, in the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man who is appointed. There is a creator God. We are the creatures. We are accountable. And ultimately we will be accountable through Jesus Christ. That's actually what he's doing here. And then he says, and he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now at this point, a phenomena happens that happens in several speeches and acts. And that is, the speech doesn't get finished. Stephen preaches, and he doesn't finish. He's martyred. Paul preaches in Pisidia Antioch, and he preaches, and he doesn't finish, because when he gets the resurrection and the challenge, they interrupt him. Here he preaches, and he gets the resurrection, and it confuses them. Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection, some of them sneered, and others said, we want to hear you again on this. He didn't get to the finish, I like to say. This is like going to an evangelistic meeting, having the organ warm up for the invitation to have people come forward, 
and you don't even get to start playing the music because something happens. Same thing happened when Peter spoke to Cornelius. He was preaching away, moving his way towards you know, presenting Jesus. You can see that this speech is headed in that direction. Before he gets there, okay, the Spirit comes and descends on Gentiles, and Peter and his crew go, did you see that? Caught off guard, and it stops the speech right in its, right in its place. And so this speech doesn't get to where it's ultimately going because the resurrection gets them off. And there's going to be more to talk about because sometimes when you share from the space where people are coming from, it takes time to get to the space you want, eventually want to get to. Verse 33, at that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them were Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, and also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now let me tell you something that's often said about this speech, and it's, and it's one thing that is dead wrong. And it is that Paul tried this method of what I'm talking about, of speaking to someone from the space they were coming from and being generous in the way that he handled it, and the speech was a failure. So he never did it again. To which my response is, ah, bah, humbug. Not true. In Lystra and Derby, we actually get a shorter form of this address. So he did it there. And this speech was not a failure. This last verse says it highlights a man and it highlights a woman who responded. And it also says a number of others. It just doesn't name them. Now, granted, this is not the thousands who responded in Jerusalem. But this speech is not a failure. And the general direction that this speech takes with people who have no scriptural background is the basic way Paul is always addressing Gentiles who have no background. There's one other thing that he does that's pretty fascinating. Throughout this speech, he never cites scripture directly. He never says, the Bible says. The one time he has to put a proof text in front of someone... You know where it comes from? It comes from a Greek poet out of their culture. I like to ask my students, if I asked you to share the gospel and said you'd have to do it with cultural artifacts that have nothing to do with the Bible, could you do it? It's an interesting question. I was talking to John earlier today about, um, about this. Um, I'm thinking pretty hard about a book that I want to do called Cries from the Public Square. The goal of the book will be to take the lyrics of key pieces of music, usually pop music, or the narrative of certain films that we see, and to ask the question, what are people groping towards? There's a language in this speech about groping towards God. What are they wrestling with? What are they thinking about? What are ways into the gospel that start from the space where this person or this music group, which our culture latches onto, are coming from? And I was mentioning the fact that I was, and I mentioned this this morning briefly, that I was watching a documentary where Coldplay, a British group, um, was playing to an audience filled of about 100,000 people in Sao Paulo, Brazil. And what fascinated me about that, among other things, a whole series of things, was here's a group singing in English 
to a group of people who speak Portuguese. And that audience knew the words of the songs that they were playing. And I thought to myself, that's interesting. How aware are we of the spaces where people come from? That we could turn around and make a biblical point or raise a biblical idea out of something that's being groped for in the culture. So this is what I'm saying. With this, I'm done. When we teach or preach and reflect on Scripture or engage with people, are we able to speak to them from the space where they are coming from? Do we take the time to listen and understand enough? Not to enter in to a debate, but to have a conversation. And in the midst of that conversation, be able to frame that discussion in such a way that we don't set to win an argument, but our simple goal is to give people pause on the space that they are occupying. I actually think that may be the most effective way we can minister to people conceptually while at the same time we minister to them relationally so that they know when we bring up the challenge, they know we care about them as people. People will not care about a critique that you give them unless they know you care. And part of that caring is caring about the space they are coming from. If we can do that better and do that well and minister faithfully, boldly, clearly, but humbly, maybe we'll go back to the future. When we go back to the future and we ask, what made the early church successful when they had no social power or no political power? The answer may well be they remembered where they came from. They cared about people. They ministered out of the space where people were starting. And not only did they talk about the way to God, they illustrated the way to God by the way they lived. That's the challenge for the modern church. It's a challenge that we all face. It's not easy. It is a real challenge. But it's the way, probably the best way, we are called to engage. Let me close us in a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you for your goodness and your grace for the challenge of your word, for the truth that it has. And yet what we really also need and need to ask for is an ability to reach out to people, not by simply wagging a finger in their face, or even worse, withdrawing and saying nothing, but by caring, listening, thinking through the space that people occupy and giving pause in which in the silence that gets created, the opportunity comes for your spirit to work. Help us to be people who can do that and do that well. And may we, by the way we live, signal very, very clearly we care for those we are interacting with, even when they disagree with us profoundly. 
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.